Hello there. You're about to listen to an episode of Food and Health Talk, Legacy Food and Health Talks. You know, in 2023, Food and Health Talks rebranded and relaunched as change makers. But all the episode we've recorded up to this point is still available for you to listen. And you're just about to listen to one of them. Enjoy it. And don't forget, Food and Health Talks is now Changemaker Podcast. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode of the Food and Health Talks podcast, a show focused on educating and empowering people to create a healthier future through nutrition and wellness education. A show where you will find interviews with leading scientists making groundbreaking discoveries, innovators, and global food industry leaders. It is that show you do not want to miss with your host, Dr. Julia Oleanju. Hello everyone, welcome to Food and Health Talks. On this episode, we'll be discussing with someone really special, a very special guest, Melanie Baltelmi. She is a global food analyst with Mintel. And today we'll be engaging in conversation, learning the different factors that are driving change in the food industry and determining what we see on the shelves each day. Many of us care about the products we buy in the stores. And we desire to see more products that are good for us, that healthy and that are sustainable on the shelves. But what are the factors that determine what we see on the shelves? And what does the future hold for the food industry? This conversation and a lot more is what we have at the table today. And we have someone that is more than capable to help us answer some of the tough questions and clarify some of the ambiguity that I have today. One of the key things about this talk is the opportunity to meet different key players in the food industry, making impacts and creating change, helping us understand the food industry better. So it's such a privilege to have you here. Um, I will start by introducing you to our audience. I want them to get to know you a little bit. So my first question to you is, Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to the point you had today uh, in, in the food industry, creating the kind of impact you're creating, helping companies understand more about consumers and um, what they should be doing to meet consumer needs? So tell us about your journey. Awesome. Thank you, first of all, so much for having me. It's a privilege for me to be here as well. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Um, so yeah, my journey has been a little bit of an indirect one, I would say. I have a, a journalism background, so I've always had a lot of curiosity and I love research. I love putting together, um, you know, taking what's going on, following leads. And so that kind of, I think, led me into wanting to write about something I also care a ton about, which is food. And so I've had a couple of opportunities from there to sort of pair those things together. Um, and what really, I think, took me to that place where I am now is the opportunity I had to work at the Institute of Food Technologists. So I really got to know the food industry. I got to understand how food is made and all those decisions that come into play when 
food scientists are thinking about developing flavors, developing, using new ingredients, things like that. And I've always been really passionate about product development and understanding um, why is a new product coming out? Who is that serving? Who is this intended for? What's the market? And when I had the opportunity to, to move over to Mintel and actually get to be part of that initial research, it's, it's funny, I'd always used Mintel in my work. And so to be on the other side and get to, um, like you said, help companies understand what consumers need, why, what they're looking for, where, where this sentiment and consumer behavior is shifting, especially in where we are now with COVID and everything sort of getting upended. It's, um, it's just an amazing opportunity to get to do that research day to day, to look at the food industry, to see where it's going, to see where it's been. It's, it's been awesome. you're on mute yeah thank you <laughs> that's really really great uh, you know uh, it's interesting to see how our journeys um change over time you know sometimes you start out and thinking oh yeah this is something i'm really really going to do but along the line your interest um, changes and you go in a different direction. Um, it's great to see how yours has played out and you're happy with what you're doing. One key thing I would like our audience to understand is what exactly you do at Mintel. I mean, number one, a lot of people don't know what Mintel is. Yeah, so yeah. It's an opportunity for them to know what um, yes. Mintel really does. So if you tell us a little bit about Mintel, what you do, and, um, and yes, just a bit of an insight. Yeah, well, and it's funny, you know, the word insight is very much built into what we um, challenge and pride ourselves on, on doing day to day is to provide those insights into consumer behavior to our clients. So we cover a lot of industries, including food. Food and drink is our bread and butter. <laughs> but we are a market research company that looks at beauty and household and demographic lifestyle. We even have um, a flavor library and we've got a cannabis library now. We're really keeping up on what's going on in the, in the industry in um, CPG at large as well. Um, and what we do is really multifaceted. So there's something for every type of company that's looking for help understanding um, what's going on in the industry. So for example, we have um, these reports, these report libraries that I've mentioned. So we've got amazing analysts that are dialing in on what's going on in pizza in the US, for example, what's going on in food service, um, what's going on in uh, ready to drink coffee drinks, things like that. So we really do this deep dive in understanding not just what consumers say that they want, but trying to get even deeper and understand those motivations on why, so that we can really um, explain which is something I do in my role. I work on what we call the Mintel food and drink platform. So. We put together these amazing uh, articles, as we call them, um, that are there for our uh, top tier subscribers to understand. We take all of the information coming from those reports, as well as our global new product database, which sources new products from around the world. And we can look at what's happening, what consumers say that they want, and then say, wow, there's some white space here for development that's currently not happening, or to say, you know, consumers think one thing, but they're not actually purchasing in that. So what's going on here to really be able to take that next step down and get deeper, more granular and 
really help companies understand the nuance in maybe their, their development, maybe marketing something that they already have out there, uh, maybe just understanding how a demographic group is shifting or you know, maybe there's a difference in what a millennial consumer or parent might want versus what their children are asking for. So we just have so much great information and you know, there's, there's always something new I discover every day, which is uh, something I love. That's absolutely great. And you know, the interesting thing is people are always curious to know what is really going on in the marketplace. What are consumers thinking? What are they doing? So they can better align themselves to meet those needs and, mm -hmm. and, and be ahead of the trend, not just trying to catch up. So my quick question is, how do you collect your data? Because I know all your um, analysis based on data. So do you use some sophisticated um, software or do you actually talk to people? Do you, how do you get your data? Yeah, that's a great question. And so we collect data in a couple of different ways. We track, first of all, in our consumer reports, we write our own surveys. We work with um, a survey company to um, send it out digitally um, to, so we always say internet users because it, it has to be done online, but it's a representative consumer base of, of what each market looks like. So for instance, um, I'm a global analyst. So we look at uh, what's going on. We have reports around the world in different markets. We also have this amazing data source, uh, which we call our, uh, our global consumer data. It's 35 markets that we ask the same question to, and we update those every six months. So we're getting not just to say uh, what is what's the UK think about this, but maybe we might ask a slightly different but similar question in Australia. Now we have the same question going to each market and we can understand maybe what sentiments are more important to a consumer in say Thailand versus a consumer in Peru. So we can start to understand some of those market differences, but all of this does come from those surveys that we send out and we get people um, answering those for themselves. And in addition to that, we have another tool that's a couple of years old called Purchase Intelligence. And so I mentioned that global new product database. So in the US and in Australia, every product that we collect in the food and drink space gets sent to, um, again, a, a representative sort of sample here, 100 consumers to give us their opinion on what does this product look like? Um, are you interested in it? Does this seem like something you'd wanna buy? rate them on these different 16 attributes. And then the best part is, uh, and I love this, we then tell them the price and then we ask them again, would you buy this? <laughs> and as you can imagine, sometimes there are those products out there that score very highly. And then you, uh, you know, there's a lot that can come out around the, the value proposition of, of what, uh, what the actual price point is. So uh, there's just so many different ways that we, we gather. I I'm barely touched the surface and we've got market sizing data. We've got all sorts of stuff that all together really build this picture of what's going on both in the industry with those introductions, as well as what consumers feel about what they're seeing and what, what's not out there. Right. That's, that's really interesting. I, I, I wish I could get some, a peek into some of those data, especially the one that has to do with people changing their minds, you know, and, oh. and I can really relate with it. Sometimes you really see something and you're like, this is really great. And then you think, um, but I won't pay that much for it. It's great, right. but not that much for it. Right, <laughs> that's, right. Uh, oh, that's well, how much was that sauce? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the things uh, we would like to learn, like really curious to learn, is about 
the food and health trend in the food industry. So if you think back to 10, 15 years or something, you, um, the way people eat back then is different from how we eat today. And what we knew back then was also very different from what we know today. So consumers are more aware. Consumers are more connected. Consumers are more curious. You know, when you have information at your fingertips, you want to know. And then when you're in, in a chat and your friend said something, you're looking it up on Google and saying, oh my gosh, this is real. So all these dynamics come together to affect the food industry as it is today. Because people now know that food is important to their overall well-being. They want to make better choices. And after having such a global pandemic, people mm -hmm. are even more mindful of their health than ever before. So it would just be so interesting to get your perspective on the trend you see in the food industry, the factors driving those trends. So I want us to start from where we were before mm -hmm. COVID-19 <laughs> even came into the picture at all. Before uh, this crisis that we, we are still facing, um, people, we, we had seen a trend in the marketplace that consumer perspective was shifting. People were leaning more towards their products. Mm -hmm. So what were you, what, what do you think about the trend before and what it is now? So we just kind of like start the journey from there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That sounds good. Um, you're right. There was absolutely already a movement toward healthier eating. And it's funny because um, it's one of those things that we've sort of been tracing how those, the interest in individual diet types has come about. I mean, even way before the pandemic, thinking about things like Atkins or um, some of those diets where consumers were really starting to recognize that maybe there were certain things that they could uh, include or eliminate that might make them um, lose weight. And that's really, I think, where the focus was if we're going farther back, we're thinking about weight loss. That was really the marker of health. Are you on a diet? Are you losing weight? And I think even before the pandemic, the way that we were seeing that shift was more toward um, a more holistic approach to health. So thinking about I'm maybe including or eliminating something because it makes me feel more energetic. It maybe gives me more, um, my, maybe my stomach can digest something better. So I'm feeling a little bit just better overall in the day. And so for that, we started to see more of an interest in different personalized diets. And I would say personalized, not necessarily to the individual, but to a certain group, a niche consumer group. So um, one of the big ones I would say was paleo when that first came around. People were starting to say, oh, I feel like I'm a paleo person. I, this is part of my identity. This is how I sort of overall approach my life. And something like that was really much tied into the CrossFit community too. So it was sort of consumers were starting to recognize that specific types of diets could help benefit them. But then the pandemic <laughs> hit. And I think we, as you said, people have started to really think more about, about their health because we saw all these negative outcomes really related to some of those um, underlying conditions that are linked to maybe greater rates of obesity, things like um, diabetes and um, uh, hypertension, things like that. 
And now we find ourselves in a really interesting place, I think, because we are still seeing interest in some of these individualized diets. So things like keto, um, low carb, low sugar, um, some of these, the Mediterranean diet is still popular. Um, some emergence of the low FODMAP diet, some more of these things where people are starting to experiment and say, how do I feel on this? Oh, did that not work for me? Let me try something else. But where we are now that's so complicated is that consumers are interested in these diets, but we have a lot going on. So the, the pandemic has meant that maybe the routines we had of going to the gym or you know, buying different foods, maybe they're not available right now because of supply chain issues. Maybe our gyms are closed. Maybe we're not comfortable going back out there. And the thing that we have been talking a lot about is maybe we're burnt out. Maybe we're overwhelmed. Maybe we're anxious. And we're finding consumers having to balance between knowing that if they can make good decisions with what they're eating, they will feel better. And again, holistically, because consumers are interested in food and drink that helps their mental health, helps them sleep, you know, makes them a well-rounded person. But to find the motivation to actually say, you know what, that macaroni and cheese, that, you know, chicken parmesan, that's going to make me feel good in the moment. But what about in the long term? It can be really hard to find that balance. And so I think consumers are really kind of in a pickle here because they, they want to do things to make that health uh, better, to, to push that forward. But it's, it's kind of running up against a wall that mm. we're going to have to help consumers overcome. Mm. That's really interesting uh, because um, one of the things I was thinking about is, um, of course, to your point, the global pandemic we've um, faced has changed many things. Number one, a lot of people for more than a year, more than 18 months, actually, have been working remotely. So less mm -hmm. physical activity. Some people were so used to going to gyms. So um, gym membership, no, I mean, gyms were closed. So yeah. exercise um, regimen changed significantly for many people. And all those things definitely affects your energy levels as well. So yes. one of the key things I was just curious about is did people turn towards comfort foods um, just to make themselves feel better or did people um, decide to you know um, eat better because they are so aware so uh, terrified by what they're seeing around them or was it just that people maintain the status quo during this um, this pandemic I, I was just wondering what your data is reflecting along those lines yeah, that's a, that's a great question too. And what's interesting is that there isn't one clear answer because mm. I think it depends very much on what else is going on with the consumer. So mm. for instance, maybe for some of those people who were now getting to work from home, they didn't have to do the commute. So that might've given them more time to maybe fit in a workout. And for those consumers who are now have a little bit more money, have a little bit more time, maybe don't have kids to worry about, they may have had the opportunity to really change the routines and make themselves uh, feel, feel better. But for other people, maybe you are now have a lot more responsibilities in the home 
And so there's even more stress on you and you're running around trying to, to help your kids e-learn and help, you know, make sure that they're eating. You've got so many more responsibilities and you're stuck at home doing them, not getting that exercise. So maybe some people did maybe gain some weight. I think I read that the average weight gain back a couple months ago when they were serving, this was 29 pounds in the U S. Wow. So, um, and and then I think too about, uh, we think about this as well from a financial uh, perspective, which I'll kind of talk about in a second, but not everybody changed, right? So there's some people who are still out there going into either their office or some other workplace, a factory or, or working in a restaurant, things like that. And now it's even more stressful. They have all these other things in their lives, like how do I wear the mask properly? What do, what do I, how do I, all this anxiety that's out there that maybe if you would have had the energy before to come home and maybe, you know, even prepare a, a slightly healthy meal. It's like, no, I just need to get through the drive-through. I just need sustenance mm -hmm. and it has to be calories. And I think from the financial perspective, we've also seen that diverge. So we see some consumers that because they're not traveling, because they're not maybe eating at restaurants as often, they're not commuting, they're saving a bunch of money. And so they can maybe afford some of these meal kits or something that is a little bit um, better quality, maybe some of those um, smoothie subscriptions, things like that. Yeah. But then other people are having to get second jobs because maybe they've been laid off. It's, it's very much that spectrum. And for as much as people might wanna focus on health, it just might not be something that's accessible for them. That's true. And you know, the interesting thing um, that I've observed to your point is that um, the feedback or the research findings that have been published online on this is very consistent with what you just said, that the results, the results are varied. So you see studies by scientists in Poland saying, oh, the pandemic really worked for us. People are eating better. People are more mindful. They're eating more um, f vegetables and fresh fruits and things like that. And then you see some other studies and, and they're saying, no, uh, people turned a lot to comfort food. So it's pretty much um, very, very, uh, I'll say diverse at this point. Mm -hmm. Different people with different um, um, responses and different outcomes, I guess. There are many factors involved, um, like you said. So that, that must be the underlying factor here. So I'll move from right along. Uh, before we talked briefly about COVID, we talked about the trend you saw before the mm -hmm. uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And I was wondering, uh, the trend towards healthy food was predominantly driven by health consciousness at the time, right? Uh, people want people's desire to look better, feel um, mm -hmm. feel better, and things like that. I uh, I just wanted to see if there were other factors behind the scene um, driving uh, the trends that people were observing in the marketplace. In your in your opinion, and based on the data you've collected before the pandemic, before, or... yeah, before the pandemic. Yeah. That's a that's a good question. I think that we. It's a complicated sort of thing too, because we think consumers understand that they should be focusing on health. And so we hear a lot about, uh, you know, making better choices and eating more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, got that messaging out there. Um, and I, I do think that there are 
it's driving consumers to say that that's what they want to focus on, whether or not it actually reflects what they ended up buying in the marketplace. I mean, that is, that is what we do, right? We ask them, what do you think? And I think sometimes consumers want to think the best of themselves and to say, yes, I'm a person who cares about my health. But then if you're in the store and you're looking at the sugar-free and the regular, uh, I'm not sure how often the consumer maybe made those choices. Because one of the things that I think before and now is so wrapped up in this is the idea of consumers want to eat healthy things. They want to make good decisions, but they need the food to still satisfy them, to make it taste good, to be a satisfying meal or snack or whatever it is. And then also, like we talked about before, to feel like it's a good value. So am I going to buy something that's full of whole grains and veggies and here it is, and then it sits in my fridge and I never want to eat it and I throw it away, you know? So it's a, a little bit of that balance of what is a realistic approach that a consumer is actually going to be able to, um, to follow through with. And I think it's so interesting because a while back before the pandemic, I was part of a panel um, through uh, the, the Spoon. Um, they were doing a, on, on basically the future of personalization of diets. And so we, something we were tracking, consumers were interested in it, but very much unwilling to spend on things like DNA tests so that they could get their individual results. It was very much a nice to have. Um, but there was another speaker who worked with Kroger, um, I believe, I think, yeah, Kroger, who they were doing a program where they had dietitians in store and they were working with individuals to say, you want to get healthier? They were coming directly from a hospital across the street and it was this prescription for food that was healthy. Mm -hmm. But the thing that the person who was on this panel was talking about is we asked the consumer what they were actually likely to eat because we could tell them eat broccoli, eat, eat green beans, eat whatever. But if this consumer says, I'm not actually going to do that, you have to pivot. You have to provide them with something that they're actually going to be able to incorporate into their diet and do it willingly and, and build those patterns. So I think that's something that we're seeing a little bit in, I don't want to say the offerings that are out there right now, but in, in how consumers are looking at them, it's, you know, we, we see consumers saying, oh yeah, I'm definitely interested in reducing sugar, but it still has to taste super good for them to actually use that product. Right, right. Uh, which, which, really leads to the next set of questions I have in mind for you. Um, the idea of, so there are a lot of innovation going on in the marketplace, especially in the area of reduced sugar in beverages and snacks, and mm -hmm. which is a big deal. Because uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, but for me, a lot of time when I go to the store, before I pick a new item, the first thing is I'm reading the label, trying to digest everything that um, is in, in the product I want to buy. And there was a day I was actually in a store and I overheard a voice saying, oh my God, this is a lot of sugar. And, and it, was, it was quite amusing because I, I, I felt like kids love sugar, but to, to, for, a, for a child to say something like that out loud, you know, it mm -hmm. means that people are paying attention to these things that 
before now, we really didn't care much about. So a lot of innovation in that space, there are beverages now um, um, that are truly low in sugar, not just like people saying, oh, low in sugar. And then you look at the label and you're like, but that's still a lot of sugar. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not bad at all. It's um, that they're honestly low in sugar. And I, I was just curious to see if there are any data capturing how well, of course, these companies, and at least I know some of them are doing well in the marketplace, but it's all relative. You have mm-hmm. a bigger picture, you know, saying, okay, compared to all these sugary drinks, this is not really doing that well, you know, but for them, or for, for, for the company, they think about their numbers, they're happy with it, and um, their investors are happy with it. So, but I, I was just curious to know how well, um, this line of products are doing what the future holds because everything boils down to the future where everything we're doing today builds on to the future like yeah. the children growing up today what kind of uh, products do they see on the shelves um, as they grow into adulthood what would they see what are we building what are we doing so how these products are doing um, in the marketplace today uh, would define what will come into the market tomorrow? So that's why I'm really curious to know um, how well are products that innovative products are entering the marketplace defined or described as um, low sugar or um, yeah, you know, some of them are even like they use fruits, sweetened fruits and yeah. things like that to make the beverage better and you know and appeal to consumers and yeah. So how are they doing? So that's an interesting point. And you know, Mintel doesn't track sales data per okay. se, but I, I agree with you that I am seeing a lot of these products out there, these companies that, um, especially in the before times when we could go to trade shows and we yeah. could see uh, everything uh, being introduced, there were a lot of these products that were starting to say, um, I'm using a different type of, of sweetener. So Maybe it was a product that was positioned as keto. Maybe it was just something that was going to be maybe diabetic friendly, things like that. So seeing a lot of allulose, the rare sugar that's growing. I can't believe we can see that in a packet at at Trader Joe's for consumers to bake with. We've come so far for that to be out there and to expect consumers to recognize that and to understand how to sort of bake and, and cook with these alternatives, that's fascinating. So I feel like we will see more of the, the monk fruits, those things out there, stevias. Um, one thing that I think a lot about is the sustainability and not, not in the environmental sense, but the how long is any one diet trend going to be the one that's popular? So will keto fall out? Will we shift back to a more, um, a diet of moderation, a little bit of everything. Are we going to see, um, some of these things come and go? Because I do agree that we, we do need to focus on sugar reduction. We need to focus on, um, those, those ingredients that have been linked to, uh, weight gain, obesity, things like that. That's very much in mind. Um, but it does still, again, have to taste good. And I think that what is going to need to happen is sort of a fundamental shift in what consumers think tastes good. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about sodium reduction and how we saw 
um, some of those companies like the soups, um, things like that, where they were doing more of the behind the scenes sodium reduction. They were gradually over time reducing the sodium content in their soups, not telling the consumer, just making it better and helping consumers get used to it over time. I could definitely see that being one of the ways forward for sugar reduction, because if we can, we've learned how to like Greek yogurt. We've learned how to like some of these things that are more tart. Um, consumers are really into spicy flavors. There, there are things out there beyond sweet for the sake of sweet. It's something we've seen on restaurant menus in our uh, flavor trends a couple of years ago. Uh, we had a trend called not too sweet. So we are seeing things like olive oils being used, tahini, more savory items, uh, ingredients being used in the dessert and in the, the sweet snack occasion. So I think that my ideal would be to see some of these companies in addition, maybe, or in, in, in a, uh, in, instead of saying we're going to swap out real sugar, cane sugar, honey, whatever it is, with a replacer, whether that's a naturally derived one or um, an artificial sweetener, could we help the consumer crave sweets less to begin with? So whenever I look for a new product and I see uh, it says, you know, low in sugar, I say, oh, is this just going to be a less sweet product? And I turn it over and it's like, ah, nope, <laughs> it's, it's just a different kind of sweetener. And for me, I have started to really appreciate lower, um, less sweet products. So I want a yogurt that really just isn't so sweet, that just has some fruit in it, maybe has some of that texture from a nut or something like that. Um, same thing with, you said, using fruit in some of these products. I think it's Kashi that has a, a filled cereal that they released recently that is filled with raisin inside. No added sugars aside from what's present in the raisin. And so you have sweetness, but it doesn't have to be overwhelmingly sweet. So that, that's my sort of hope that we start to see more of these products out there for people who aren't necessarily going to adhere to any one diet, because we do know that the people who are true, you know, paleo or keto or whatever um, adherence, they're, they're small. People tend to shift between diets. They, they do something for a little while, or they do one thing at breakfast, one thing at dinner. So uh, for that to just be something that's out there, I think that would be amazing. And I absolutely, absolutely agree with you. Uh, for me as well, I, I found out that you can easily train yourself uh, to, uh, to lose the appetite for those um, sweet, um, sweet and, you know, very sweet products generally. Like growing up, I was one of those people that love everything sweet. I just, I just loved it. But over time, I've just trained myself uh, to cut back on it. So that's why I'm always very curious to see what's new on the market that's truly, truly low sugar. And for instance, I don't cook with salt at all. Mm. And that's something I had to also train myself yeah. to. It wasn't always like that. And now I don't even miss it. So if I eat a meal that has a little bit of salt, if you start salty, you're like, wow, this is salty. <laughs> but the truth is just that I, I've just trained myself to eat differently. So one of the key things I realize is that 
education matters. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of companies will have to really invest in that. And even um, community intervention efforts uh, will have to focus more on educating people to see how important food is to their overall well-being and how all these little choices that will make everyday heads up uh, to impact our health on the long term. I think I think that's one one big part of um, part of this. Then um, I think I will just shift shares a bit to move on to um, proteins, alternative source of source of protein. That's something that is really trending today uh, in the food industry market generally. There are a lot of startups that have raised a significant amount of money and um, they're innovating creatively as well. And some are really so good that you're, you're eating it and you're not sure, is this really not <laughs> meat? You know, it's that, it's that good. And I wanted to just get a sense of what you are seeing. What do you think? What does your data show uh, with regards to the future of, uh, of this part of the industry? Yeah, I think that the alternative protein space is so interesting because it's funny. I mean, I'm, I do a lot of work with fruits and vegetables. And so, um, one of the things that I'm looking at right now is how much mushroom is being used in place of things, you know, um, they're making jerkies out of it. They make, make meat alternatives. They make blended, uh, products. And it's just funny because some of these things have been around forever, Mm. like, a portobello instead of uh, a beef patty, things like that, using black beans, making um, some of these veggie burgers. It's like suddenly we just have a new look at it. It's like people are just sort of rediscovering that this was something that was always available. And we're seeing that development, I think, go in those couple of directions. We're seeing some products that really are saying, this is a product that's made from visible ingredients that you can see, like some of these quinoa um, alternatives. You can you can see it. It's it's just not meat. But then, like you said, there's some of these that are fine tuning the experience of replacing um, meat and dairy uh, to the point where you might not know what you're eating if somebody didn't tell you. Yeah. And I think what we have seen is that. Um, Consumers, I think, do well with some of these products when they are presented in those forms that they're familiar with. So I think that's why we saw lots of burgers at first, and then they kind of are shifting into the chicken and the pork and those different formats because consumers are getting more used to it. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me on protein consumption, but I know that it is something most consumers still say that they're they're carnivores or the uh, the number of consumers who are, are vegetarian or vegan or flexitarian, still very low. I think vegans about 2% of the US population, vegetarian about five. I think we saw about 14% flexitarian. So the majority of consumers still are eating meat, but I think we are seeing more, um, especially among younger consumers who are thinking about this from both a health and a, an environmental um, appreciation, they are more willing to swap, make these swaps to um, really kind of vote with their food choices on what they want to see in the world. So I do expect that we will see more of this. 
Um, as somebody who, <laughs> well, as I'm biased because I, I struggle with the texture of some of the you know alternative products. Not that they're not doing a good job. There's just something in my head where I know I'm not eating chicken. And so if you didn't, if you told me, oh, it's chicken, I probably would love it, but like getting over that hurdle. But I think the the younger consumers and some of these people, they're they're totally willing to make that sort of uh, adjustment. And so I think we will see this development continue. Um, same thing in the alternative milk space. There's just more and more of these sources. And I think what's funny is, I think some of these have been around for a while, just maybe in niche places. So like there's macadamia nut milk now, which is wonderful, pistachio milk, delicious. So we're seeing the more of these products that are on the market, I think the more that consumers are willing to give them a try, like oat milk, um, being able to, to take a, a new new product, but really they already know about almond milk, they know about soy milk. So if they can have it in a, in a form that they're used to, so say at a, um, at a Starbucks or another type of coffee shop, then that could really set them up for being more willing to try these kinds of products again into the future. That's great. And I was actually surprised uh, to hear the numbers uh, so low in the U.S. with because um, there's so much, let's say, hype around um, mm-hmm. that you almost think like half the country is, I know. is going vegetarian or something. But seeing those numbers, and I'm sure that there'll be fluctuations too. So an example is my nephew. When he was around 12, I think it was middle school, it just it came on a visit and he said, oh, I'm vegetarian. I said, what? He said, yeah, I'm not having that. So anyway, it was vegetarian at that point. And then three years later, I saw him and he was really chewing down on, on uh, chicken. And I thought, <laughs> I thought you were vegetarian. I said, I changed my mind. So I realized that some people at some point, maybe um, for whatever reason, they adopt something. Like for mm-hmm. him, he explained that his school at the time, they talked a lot about it and there were even some days that the meals served in um, cafeteria was completely plant-based. So he embraced it at that point. And when no one was talking about it anymore and he moved on to high school, he moved on to something else. So yeah. I'm guessing that there will be that fluctuations in different age groups as well in terms of where they are and what they, what they eat at different points in time. It will be very interesting to watch how, how things unfold. I really yeah. enjoyed this conversation. And as we wrap things up, I want to get your sense overall on what you think about the future of food. What do you think, what do you think we'll have uh, next few years from now? What do you see? Um, just your own perspective on, on what would you like to see the food yeah. industry look like? What would you like to see uh, in, in, on the shelves in the stores? Yeah, I think that for me, um, one of the things we talk a lot about is sometimes we need to anticipate the future needs of consumers, even though right now, perhaps they're not indicating that they would pay more for something like say sustainability. Over time, sustainability and health are going to be so linked up together because of the ability to grow crops, the ability to um, be able to produce enough fruits and vegetables and grains and all of those ingredients for everybody. So the thing I'd really like to see, and I'm, I am already seeing, is more of a focus on investing in more sustainable supply chains, especially since we've been seeing 
everything on flux because of COVID, it feels like the opportunity is now to really invest in the future of food, to make sure that the, the, the choices we're making are really strategic to get ahead of the consumer and say, yes, you are realizing now that things are getting pretty dire. Well, don't worry. We have been working behind the scenes to make this sustainable for you. And in that way, um, making the food more healthier. So if we know that there's excess carbon, um, for instance, plants might grow really fast, but they might not contain as many nutrients as if they were um, grown in, in soil that was a little bit more arable. So um, I'm not a farmer, so I might have <laughs> kind of, <laughs> okay. um, but I think that all of the sort of discussion points that we're having around things like upcycling, regenerative agriculture, I always say it doesn't matter what form these things take. Uh, don't just hop on something because it's the cool term now, like with your nephew, that example, things might change. But if we're thinking about the good of the consumer, it is so much linked up into the good of the planet and the good of all of us who live on it. So that's definitely something that I'm, I'm hoping and anticipating seeing. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely a very strong point there. Um, basing our actions, our thoughts, and uh, initiatives on the overall good for the planet and for people. Thank you so much for making time to join us today and just share your insights and thoughts with us. Uh, and also to everyone that is listening, thank you for connecting. And uh, till the next time when I bring another exceptional guest your way, uh, stay safe and we'll connect with you soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I'd like to share a very important tool that makes it very easy for me to prepare this podcast every single episode with you. And that tool is a platform called Anchor. Anchor is a platform created by Spotify, which makes it very easy to record, edit, merge, insert music into your audio and just prepare everything you need for each of your episodes. It also makes it easy for you to work with your team as well. They could prepare the files for you and you upload easily or they upload for you. Whatever you want to do with preparing for and broadcasting your podcast, Anchor makes it easy. So check it out. It's free to create your account and I also want to add this as a sponsored segment. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for another session of Food and Health Talks. We invite you to subscribe to this channel, share this with your friends and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a review for us. Together, we are joining hands to shape a healthier future of food.